WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts, and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories, stories you might have missed, like these. The Chicago City Council is giving the green light to the mayor's $16.7 billion budget. The plan includes hundreds of millions of dollars in investments for things like mental health, the environment, and violence prevention. Illinois lawmakers have voted to repeal a state law that requires health care providers to notify parents or guardians of minors seeking abortions. We are trying to protect those who cannot stand up for themselves. About 30% of the police force is still refusing to share whether or not they are vaccinated against COVID-19. It is an improper order. It is illegal. Refuse that order. Serving six terms in Congress has been an honor of a lifetime. This isn't the end of my political future, but the beginning. With me for those stories and more, Heather Sharon, political reporter for WTTW News. Hey, Heather, TGIF. Hi, Sasha. And WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Hey, Dave. Sasha, how are you? Doing well. Uh, Let's jump right in. As we've been hearing here on WBEZ, this morning's news that Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's a Trump critic, is not going to be running for re-election. In his video announcement, which we just heard, he said, it's, quote, not the end of my political career, but the beginning. What are your thoughts, Dave? Well, I mean, it's a blow to the moderate wing of the Illinois Republican Party because he he certainly fit the profile of a socially moderate, fiscally conservative Republican. You know, I think that there's very little surprise here that uh, he got drawn into a district that was pitting him against Darren LaHood, a, a Peoria area area congressman. It's a very heavily Republican piece of political turf. And the problem with Kinzinger is that he just you know, he took on Trump as much as he did with this position on the uh, January 6th Insurrection Committee. He was one of 10 Republicans to vote for impeachment. He basically, if you talk to any Republicans in the state, he had a primary problem, so he couldn't get anywhere with that. So moving ahead, what this future political move of his is that he's talking about, the mm-hmm. political future, he could be set up for a potential statewide run, I suppose, against Governor Pritzker or U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth. Both of them are on the ballot next year. He's in a weird spot in the Republican Party now because the parties, both Democrat and Republican, are so polarized now, there's not much room in the middle, and that's yeah. where he's at. What are your thoughts, Heather? Well, I think this is another data point for the Republican Party 
which is trying to figure out where it's going to go from here. Is it a party that seeks to be moderate? Is it a party that seeks to challenge uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker in the political center? Or is it a political party that believes it can win statewide office from the governor on down by moving to the right? And everybody today is talking about, oh, well, does this mean that he's going to run for governor? Does this mean he's going to run for senator? I think that we have to stop and think if a Republican finds himself unable to survive Republican primary, which I think is what's happening here, how can that Republican go on to win statewide office, I think should be a question that we're all asking. And I think it's probably worth mentioning that Kinzinger serves on the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and he's one of two Republicans. And of course, the other Republican, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, uh, she is facing a brutal primary battle right now to win real And this is an important data point, and the ultimate fate of Liz Cheney will be another crucial one. Let's move over to Mayor Lightfoot's $16.7 billion budget, which was approved in city council this week, 35 to 15. How did it get through so easily, Heather, even with those property tax increases? Well, the easy answer is is that she cut a deal, and this is a mayor who famously says that she does not cut deals, but she cut a deal with the city council's progressive caucus. And it is fascinating to me, and I think a little bit undercovered, that her first two budgets passed over the objections of the Chicago City Council's Progressive Caucus. And her third budget, which of course includes about $2 billion of federal relief aid, passed only because of the support of the Progressive Caucus. And she won those votes by agreeing to expand staffing at Chicago's publicly run mental health clinics and for setting aside more money for affordable housing on top of using really a significant portion of not just the federal relief package, but also borrowed funds to fund projects that she believes and that the Progressive Caucus believes will help rebuild the city's infrastructure physically and its social safety net, which Mm -hmm. everybody can see sort of where those gaps were because of the pandemic. Dave, do you see that the the property tax hikes, do you think they're going to come back to haunt Lightfoot if she does run for re-election? Well, I mean, her estimate says that this is a, a basically a $37 a year increase in property taxes for the owner of a $250,000 home. You know, I mean, that's described by her allies as fairly modest. But at the same time, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, property taxes are a political problem. They have been demonstrated over the years that they can be a political problem. But I think in the city right now, there are bigger fish to fry. I mean, starting with the, the level of crime that seems like it's out of control. I think, you know, the economy is another issue, you know, getting the the city back up and running. Those are big issues right now that are confronting her. And and especially on the crime front, you can't really go anywhere in the city right now without fear of of carjacking or shootings. And if there's an improvement on that, that is the issue, I think, that really could come back to haunt her. Heather, give us the details on on the uh, $500 checks for 5,000 low-income families. It's a basic income program, right? Boy, I wish I could, but I don't really know, and aldermen don't really know any more than that. This is one of those programs, while the money has been earmarked, we don't know how Chicago families will qualify for that program, and we don't know when that money will start to flow. 
And this is one of those programs where, you know, the devil is truly in the details. And it will actually sort of now go through a whole process where the mayor's office and aldermanic offices will get together and try to start those rules. But this money is not going to start going out immediately. I know that I've gotten several emails from people sounding relatively desperate about their financial situation, trying to make sure that they could get on the list. And right now there is no list. And that means that the city has a lot of work to do to fulfill that promise that essentially this budget makes. And it is not going to be an easy undertaking. This is the largest basic income pilot program in the nation. And while the mayor came to embrace it, it was only after it was blocked for several months by the city council's Black Caucus, which wanted the city to address reparations for the descendants of enslaved African Americans before they created a program to help all Chicagoans struggling in the pandemic. So this is going to be another big fight at City Hall to set these boundaries and to figure out who will benefit how to track those benefits mm-hmm. and figure out if the city um, can afford or even if it wants to, to continue this program past the year-long expiration date. Well, Mayor Lightfoot may have had an easy time getting her budget passed, but she's still at odds with the head of the police union. John Catanzara is still encouraging officers to defy that vaccine mandate for city employees. What's the latest there, Heather? Well, we are waiting for a number of different court decisions to come down about legal challenges against these vaccine mandates. We are expecting a Cook County judge to issue a decision on Monday. We are expecting a federal judge to make a determination later this afternoon about a federal case brought by about 130 members, primarily of the fire department. So that is very much up in the air. And as we speak, I'm sitting in the press room at City Hall while the city council debates a measure introduced by Alderman Sylvanus Tavares of the 23rd Ward that would roll back that vaccine mandate. And we should have a vote sooner rather than later in what turned out to be the third full city council meeting uh, this week alone. I see. Uh, Ken Azara says the union's open to daily testing of officers. How could that change the dynamic? So I don't think it does, quite honestly, because this issue is not one where the mayor has been very clear in saying that all of the science and all of the data shows that the best protection is to be vaccinated. And that certainly routine testing can help, but that it is not a sustainable long-term strategy to keep COVID-19 from spreading because we've all, you know, heard stories or perhaps experienced taking one of those rapid tests and either getting a, a false positive or getting a false negative. So the way that it's set up right now is that all officers and all city workers have to do is simply to report whether they're vaccinated or not. And if they're not, they have to take a test twice a week and submit that information to the city. And that is going to be the state of affairs until December 31st. And on December 31st, then all city employees have to be vaccinated unless they've received a medical or religious exemption. And the last data we saw on that was that about 4,500 city employees have, have applied for that. It's not clear how many will be granted. But the mayor is not willing to allow this daily testing um, because she says it just 
simply won't do enough to protect the people of Chicago, who, of course, have to interact with police officers and building inspectors and firefighters and paramedics uh, going forward. Dave, let's move over to Springfield, where the legislature is finishing up the fall session. Last night, Democrats passed a fourth draft of their proposed congressional map. Who were the winners and losers in this new version? Well, I mean, Sasha, probably the biggest loser out of all of this is the freshman Congresswoman Marie Newman. Uh, she was drawn into a district that is uh, a Latino majority district that is, is currently held by Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia, basically a, a very long shot kind of political proposition for her. And she lobbied really hard to somehow be spared in the way that this map was drawn. But what they had done initially in the earlier drafts was pair her up against Sean Caston in a district that would span kind of the, a swath of the southwest suburbs into DuPage County. That's where Caston uh, lives. Uh, Newman's residence is within, as I mentioned, in, in the uh, Garcia district. And what she has come out this morning and said is that she intends to run against Caston mm. regardless. So what we have now is, is a potential primary between uh, a moderate in Caston and a progressive in, in Newman that figures to be really divisive, it figures to be really expensive, and a very difficult thing for the Democratic Party to have to stomach here in, in suburban Chicago. I would say uh, there are winners on this map. I mean, people like Lauren Underwood, I mean, her district, I think, was reconfigured in a way that would sort of fortify it and make it a little bit more Democratic friendly for her, the same way with Congressman Bill Foster out in the uh, the far west and, and southwest suburbs. Probably the big news is that there was a, a new Latino-leaning congressional district that was created from you know Humboldt Park, Logan Square area, all the way out to West Chicago. And, okay. Uh, that lacks an incumbent, but for Latinos whose population has risen in Illinois when pretty much all the other demographic groups were dropping, it's an important milestone, potentially, if one of their candidates can win that district. It's a bit of a, a toss-up, though, because the district, while I think the percentages roughly are about equal between Latinos and white voting age population. So it is a bit of a coin toss, but it's more than Latinos have had up until this point. So just so we're clear, it, it passed in the House and Senate, and it's now sitting on the governor's desk for his signature? Well, it's uh, headed that way. Yeah, I mean, it's passed both legislative chambers. I doubt that there's going to be much of any kind of pushback now from Governor Pritzker. Okay. I mean, you know, the other thing, uh, Sasha, to point out with this is that nationally, this is an important map because if all things go as planned in the election next year, this could increase Democratic seats in Congress from Illinois by a net of three. And the margin that, that Nancy Pelosi has in Washington right now is basically eight seats. So she is clinging on for dear life. And, and a lot of the polls show Republicans are favored to take uh, the U.S. House. But this is at least a minor effort, small effort to try to, to fortify Pelosi. So here's one of the most controversial votes, Dave. Democrats passed a repeal of a law that's requiring parents or guardians to be notified when girls who are younger than 18 are seeking an abortion. People are passionate about this issue on on both sides. Were emotions running high as this was being debated? Well, this is one of the issues that did draw a lot of, uh, you know, debate while while these maps were being drawn down in Springfield. You know, this is a law that has been on the books since 1995, but it hasn't been enforced in Illinois since the early 2000s. And basically what it is is if a, a girl 17 or under wants to obtain an abortion, then whoever is providing that abortion is obligated to inform her parents, grandparents or guardian. I mean, there are, there are a handful of states that have these parental notification laws. But what Democrats wanted to do with this in, in repealing that 
was basically to send a message to the rest of the country, and in particular, the red states like Texas, for example, that has imposed this uh, abortion restriction that, that pretty much eliminates the ability to get an abortion after a fetus is six weeks old. They wanted to send a message to states like that, that Illinois is forward thinking on abortion and believes that abortion rights are important for women. And so this is an issue that uh, I know that both Democratic chambers of the legislature supported. Governor Pritzker has indicated he intends to sign that. And that's going to be something you see him take on the campaign trail with him next year is a message to women voters that he's got their back. And the governor's electric vehicle incentives bill was also passed late yesterday. What's that going to mean for the state? Well, that one is a, is a lower profile kind of thing. I mean, it, it's something that was a priority to the governor's office. Uh, it, it dovetails off of uh, the energy bill that, that passed uh, a few months back where there were big incentives put in there for electric vehicles. What the governor wants to do is to set up a, a situation where, you know, we, we kind of create this uh, Silicon Valley type environment for electric vehicle manufacturers. And, you know, there, there's a big one in Bloomington currently, but he wants to open up the door uh, with these incentives to try to draw more manufacturers to Illinois. Again, it's a sort of a forward thinking kind of climate friendly initiative that, you know, I think in 10 years, it's probably going to be one of those things where people look back and say, well, wow, this uh, was probably an important step here to try to fix the environment a little bit. I mean, electric cars, face it, are going to be a thing in everybody's lives here in the next five to 10 years. And so this is just the first step toward that. That's Dave McKinney, WBEZ state politics reporter, and Heather Sharon, political reporter for WTTW News. And we're not done yet. Plenty more news to get to including these stories. The former Chicago Blackhawks player who's suing the team for mishandling his sexual assault allegations against a coach has revealed his identity. Just a a great feeling of relief, vindication, and it was no longer my word against everybody else's. Enrollment data released today shows a steep drop in the number of students attending Chicago public schools. I want to look at neighbor by neighborhood what happened in terms of enrollment, but even questions around the quality of the programming. 32-year-old Mauricio Ramirez was the first person charged in the growing sexual misconduct scandal at the Chicago Park District's beaches and pools. Serving six terms in Congress has been an honor of a lifetime. This isn't the end of my political future but the beginning. So let's dive right back in. The Black Hawk scandal, a damaging independent investigation, was released Tuesday, leading to multiple resignations. Let's begin with last night's news. The former Black Hawks coach, who's now head coach of the Florida Panthers, has stepped down. Dave, what did the report say about Joel Quenville? Yeah, this has been a, a, a very busy week here on this Blackhawks story. I mean, that report that came out from Jenner really, really kind of added fuel to the fire about the way management back in 2010 really sort of sat on the complaint from this uh, hockey player. He was a prospect named Kyle Beach. And it, it basically was viewed as a distraction for the team's Stanley Cup aspirations back then. And as uh, word of this came out, I mean, we, we first learned about this back in May mm-hmm. when a lawsuit was filed. And the, the real trigger with this is that after the team learned of this allegation, they sat on it for three weeks and then gave the uh, assistant coach, uh, Brad Aldrich, the opportunity to resign without an investigation. And so that's what happened. And then Aldrich then went on to different places. We, we've documented that, you know, one of the places he went to was uh, the state of Michigan. He was convicted of sexually assaulting a teenage boy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's on the sex offender registry in that state. Uh, prior to that, he had been in uh, at Miami University 
Uh, a couple of students there had, had lodged complaints with the university. And this was a pattern where it seemed like wherever he went, there were these uh, situations popping up that were basically sexual misconduct types of things. And so the Blackhawks wind up with this gigantic PR nightmare on their hands and, you know, and, and, and it has had to have affected their bottom line and their reputation in the league. I mean, I've had season ticket holders reach out to me and say, look, I'm dropping this. I can't stomach the idea that this team allowed this to happen, that yeah. they didn't do anything right out of the gate when they learned about the allegations. So heads are rolling. The team's reputation is in tatters. And now they've got to rebuild their integrity in a way with the fan base. The the Blackhawks were fined $2 million, right? That, that's one of the biggest fines in the league's history, isn't it? It is one of the biggest fines. And they, they also, uh, you know, the, the longtime executive um, Stan Bowman, who was the general manager back in 2010 when this happened, he's out the door. And, and as uh, Heather mentioned, Joel Quenville, who was uh, the coach during those uh, six seasons. And, and so it, it really just has been a uh, like a wildfire kind of going through anybody who's, who had fingerprints mm-hmm. on this particular case. The, the thing that, you know, in the general report that, that is really striking, very explicit detail of what happened. But, but what you saw were photographs at the very end of that that – Aldrich, the assistant coach, he was being welcomed into the fold even after the team knew about these allegations. There were pictures of him hoisting the Stanley Cup up into the air. He was allowed to take it back to his hometown in Michigan where where he later went on to abuse the boy. There was all this evidence that left the team and the NHL with no choice but to act belatedly, but to act. And you, of course, know all this. You've been covering this story, Dave, from the very beginning, right, since the lawsuit was filed in May. Yeah, I mean, my, my colleague Tony Arnold and I, when the, the state beat kind of slowed down for a little bit, we stumbled upon this lawsuit. And as we kind of started pulling thread on it, we could see that it was a really big deal. And the trigger to it was was kind of what happened after he left the, the Blackhawks, Aldrich left the Blackhawks, because, as I mentioned, it was clear there was a pattern that wherever he went, these allegations surfaced. And it all came back to, you know, did the team act properly at a minimum, taking this player's allegations seriously? And, you know, and it's evident they didn't. The player, uh, Beach, was a a prospect who was drafted in 2008 by the Blackhawks. He was a first-round pick. And he came up to the team about a month before the Stanley Cup. He was going to be a a sub-in. He never wore the uniform, but he was there just in case. Mm -hmm. And Beach wound up doing an interview with TSN, which is – Canada's ESPN equivalent uh, this week as well. And that that was the first time anyone had uh, known who this player was publicly. He had been identified in court filings as John Doe. It was the first time anybody could kind of hear the, uh, you know, the emotional turmoil that this man was left with in, you know, experiencing this and then seeing how the team handled it. And so it's been a very dramatic week in Chicago sports for sure. Heather, um, when uh, general manager, as we, we mentioned, Stan Bowman resigned, of course, the day that the report came out. But uh, the Hawks CEO, Danny Wirtz, he said that he, quote, appreciated Bowman's dedication and that he exhibited, quote, extreme professionalism. Does that make you wonder how seriously the organization takes the findings, Heather? Uh, 
It sure does. And I think you also have to ask that question after team captain Jonathan Tays said after the team's game that same day that he, you know, highly respected Stan Bowman and that he always knew Stan Bowman to do exactly the right thing in all circumstances for the benefit of the Blackhawks players. And, you know, to be frank, we just know that that's simply not true. And in hearing that, I wondered, you know, uh, what do other victims of sexual abuse think when they hear that, when they hear somebody um, with the star caliber of somebody like Jonathan Tays to say, you know, he didn't do anything wrong after he had to resign because of what he did wrong. You know, it should not be a surprise to any of us, you know, either in the news media or outside of the news media, that it's very, very hard for sexual assault victims to report and to be publicly identified. And I think that these are all questions that the Blackhawks are going to have to grapple with going forward. It's one of those moments where I think it should really, you know, impress upon all of us that there are, you know, sort of layers of what people are going through. And, you know, I was really struck by looking back at some of the coverage of Kyle Beach, who was sort of seen as a bust. You know, he was a highly touted draft pick and was sort of seen as somebody who never lived up to his promise. And, of course, we know that there is more that meets the eye to those headlines. And and I think that should be a sobering moment for all of us. Heather, I want to shift over to CPS, where enrollment continues to decline. What did we learn this week? Well, we learned that about 10,000 fewer students enrolled this fall in Chicago public schools than they did last fall. And this is just another year of significant and sobering declines in the district's enrollment. And the school district is now just barely hanging on as the third largest in the nation. And um, I think it will present serious challenges for Mayor Lori Lightfoot, for new CEO Pedro Martinez and the soon-to-be newly elected school board, which will have to figure out um, how to cope with that decline and how to make sure that schools that are perhaps losing students, um, how those schools you know, provide ample resources for the students that choose to stay in CPS. And uh, a Cook County judge set bail at $500,000 for the first person criminally charged in the Chicago Beaches and Pools lifeguard scandal. Now, these allegations were first exposed by our WBEZ colleague, Dan Mihalopoulos. Dave, what is 32-year-old ex-Chicago Park District employee Mauricio Ramirez being accused of now? Well, I mean, there there are cases here of, again, alleged sexual abuse against some of the, the, the female lifeguards there. And you know, again, it's, you can't put enough praise on Dan's work here because this is a situation where none of this was known and it had been going on for years and, and there was really no accountability going on in the park district. Again, a situation where people were, were not taking complaints of, of these types of allegations seriously. And so Dan, with his reporting, just as was the case with the Blackhawks, it's like when you shine a light on this stuff, it's pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are consequences to it. And, and what we're seeing now are the consequences. And it's a situation that, you know, the mayor has it's landed in her lap. And, and it's a question of, you know, how much house cleaning still needs to be done at the park district. Sounds like a lot. Heather, new developments in the case against Alderman Patrick Daly Thompson, who's grandson and nephew of two legendary Chicago mayors. Give us the latest news on that. 
Well, he is now scheduled to go to trial on February 1st, which is a delay. Um, He was supposed to start um, his trial on October 18th, but there was a family emergency in the family of the prosecutors, so that was delayed. What's interesting about this among all of the charges, which I should say Alderman Daly Thompson has pled not guilty to, is that it will only be about nine months before the scheduled start of the trial and his indictment, which is an, a lightning fast turnaround, especially for these kinds of cases. Now, Alderman Daly Thompson says that's because this is a very, you know, clear-cut case where he didn't do anything wrong and he wants to clear his name as quickly as possible. You know, it is not often that you have a sitting elected official go to trial this quickly or at all. Uh, By comparison, um, we all have been waiting for more than two years for Alderman Ed Burke, who was indicted in May of 2020, to go to trial. And he is not anywhere close to going to trial. So it's a very fast turnaround, and it will be quite a day in Chicago political corruption history for, you know, a member of the Daly family to stand trial, even though what he's accused of is a little bit separate from his official duties. He's accused of filing false tax returns and lying to the uh, lying to federal agents about what um, about those returns. And Heather, it looks like younger kids are soon going to be eligible for the COVID vaccine. Briefly, what's our uh, public health chief, Dr. Allison Arwoody, saying about that? That there will be plenty of vaccines for parents to get their kids jabbed potentially as soon as next weekend, so November 6th, perhaps and that we will not have to scramble to, you know, log on to 8,000 different websites and call <laughs> and wait online like we all did back, you know, when in December and, and, and January of this past year, so that uh, there are about 200,000 Chicago children who will be eligible, we expect, uh, coming up, and the city will get about 100,000 doses of the vaccine just in the first week alone for young kids. So at least, like me, if you're the parent of a child under 12, Um, We've all been waiting for this day, and it is great news that this vaccine, according to the data, is safe and effective and ready to get put in in tiny kids' arms. Ready to go. Before we go, Dave, uh, Chicago Bears coach Matt Nagy revealed this week that he tested positive for COVID. So is he going to be coaching this Sunday? Well, it doesn't look like that. It looks like he's going to still be in a a quarantine kind of situation. So he's going to be turning that over to an assistant. But, well, I I don't know if it's good timing or bad timing, but, but, you know, the Bears just got, I mean, they got clobbered last week by Tampa Bay. And so in a way it's, it it might serve as a bit of a reset for Nagy, but yeah, he's going to be out of the picture. He's not, not going to be on the sidelines this week running the team. That's it for the Weekly News Recap. I want to thank Dave McKinney of WBEZ and Heather Sharon, political reporter for WTTW News. Have a great weekend. That's it for the Weekly News Recap. If you want to really dive deep into the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then please take a few seconds to give us a rating and review. It really helps people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. And don't let the dreary weather deter you. Get out there and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.